Lord, we thank you um, that we can gather to meet together this morning. We thank you that despite snow, despite slight chaos, we can still meet to hear from you, to encourage each other. As Sarah prayed at the beginning, in the midst of all that's going on, would you give us the ability, please, just to pause and to ponder, remembering who you are, remembering your kindness. Pray that you would speak to each of us in all that's going on. In your son's name, amen. If you dig right down into the Bible, at the very heart, at the very centre, at the core, there is this tension, this conundrum. And it's the conundrum of intimacy with God. You see, when he made the world, it was good. And because it was good, so he was intimately involved. He was at the heart of it with his people, right there among them. There's this beautiful sentence in Genesis chapter 3. Maybe you, um, you remember it. Talks of the people walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. Isn't that kind of tantalizing? Maybe that was his habits. Just a glimpse of the friendship, the, the daily joy to be treasured. It's the icing on the cake of creation, not just having God make his worlds, but more than that, a picture of God's people at rest, relating to him, friends with him, life as it was meant to be, everything right with the world. But then Adam and Eve walk out on God. They eat from the tree, the one thing they're not meant to do. And, and as they sin, so that intimacy goes, that walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day is gone. He comes looking, they go hiding. There's shame, there's guilt, there's brokenness. Do you see, we were made for intimacy with him. We were made to know him, but from here on in, it's gone. It's all gone wrong. And in one sense, the rest of the Bible is a story of dealing with that problem, that conundrum, that tension. The story unfolds, and it's not obvious how things are going to get worked out, um, there are promises, there are glimpses, there are specks of hope there. Promises of God being with his people once again in that kind of a way of him living among them in a walking with him in the garden in the cool of the day type way. I will be your God and you will be my people. God promises to Abraham. He makes, he confirms, he ratifies covenants with Abraham for that kind of intimacy again. Or Do you remember as the people are wandering through the wilderness, the tent of meeting, the very heart of the camp, the very heart of the people of God. Or, or it begins to be described as God's people are in a marriage to him. That kind of language is used, a closeness, a, a, they're loved. There's an enjoyment of the friendship. There's a beautiful intimacy glimpsed. But there's still this problem of sin, of rebellion, of wanting to do things our way, of me first. And it hangs over everything and it infects and it spoils and it ruins and it bends everything. And so God establishes the sacrificial system, as you possibly know. These sacrifices, they're not, they're not ways of forcing God to relate to us. If I could just do enough, then he'd have, have me back. He has to. He'd let us back in the room if we just tick these boxes. Then we can be friends again, yeah? It's not us trying to twist God's arm. 
and make him do something he doesn't want to do. No, they are his initiative, his plan, his gracious provision, his kindness that we might be reconciled. That this sin might not be a forever separation between a pure and holy God and a broken and sinful people. That, that he might know his people again with intimacy. And at the sacrifices, each time the leader is there with his hands on the livestock. Each time the high priest puts his hands on the goats the bull. Each time a man turns up at the temple with his hands on a lamb's head, there is no doubt why the animals are dying, who the animals are dying for. The animal dies so the people don't. The lamb is killed so the family is spared. The goat is killed so the people are not. Blood is shed but it's not the blood of the people. And so there ends up being a level of intimacy. But it's not a walking in the garden with God in the cool of the day type intimacy. Sin is still a live issue. It's still there. It's not gone. It keeps coming back. And, and as people, they, as do we, end up becoming desensitized to it. We just don't notice that it's there anymore. We just kind of get used to it and live with it. One of the things that struck me last week with the live nativity was how my nose adapted to the smell of animals. Do you get that? The, they arrive, cows in the backyard doing what cows do, and it's a bit stinky at first. But then you just don't notice it. Or donkey. As Tracy the donkey had an accident for the second time in 16 years, at first it did not smell good. But actually, quite quickly, you lose the offence. We're desensitised to it. It's kind of a similar thing with sin. It was offensive. We hated it. And then we just don't notice it. We just accept it. We don't care so much anymore. We've lost sight of how good our God is and how not good we are. And you see, that is why Matthew makes such a huge deal of Jesus, because he comes to deal with this conundrum. Jesus comes to sort out this tension. Jesus makes intimacy with God possible again. If you want a sentence to kind of hang everything around today, is this. His extraordinary birth reveals his extraordinary mission. His extraordinary birth reveals his extraordinary mission. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to, to divorce her quietly. Imagine what engaged to be married Joseph must have thought. In those days, marriage arrangements were very different from the traditions we're used to. Jewish girls would often be pledged to be married at a very young age, 12 or 13, to a boy of a similar age, perhaps. The engagement period often lasted about a year. It was legally binding. They were called husband and wife. They didn't live together. The girl would still be with her parents. There would be no sex. 
Then there would be a seven-day wedding ceremony or so. Then after the party, the new bride would be taken to the groom's house and they would begin married life together. They were a new family unit. And so put yourself into the shoes of Joseph. And it becomes clear that Mary's gain in weight is not from overeating or under-exercise. It becomes clear she's pregnant. And more than that, he knows the baby is not his. In verse 19, you see he's in between a rock and a hard place. He is righteous, that is, he is wanting to live faithfully to God's law. And so he plans to divorce her as, as the law would allow him to. He would have been well within his rights to do that. He's righteous, so he wants to do that. But he's also kind. He's kind, so he'll do it quietly. He's got no intention of hauling this young girl through the public courts. Rather, presumably in the presence of two or three witnesses, he would write her a certificate of divorce and be done with it. His heart would be broken, but her reputation would be saved. And that's his plan. And he goes to sleep. Verse 20, but after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he wasn't expecting that. Notice verse um, 20. Joseph is called the son of David. And that is deliberate. It's how Matthew starts the gospel off um, in 1 verse 1. If you just want to flick um, or look over the, the column there. Um, it matters. It matters because God's king was expected to be a descendant of King David, and it passed down the male line. So the question is this How can Jesus, without a literal human father, claim such an honor of being a son of David? How does that work? Well, essentially because of adoption. Joseph was not Jesus' paternal father but rather he marries Mary and becomes Jesus' legal father, which is why Jesus can be a son of David. I think actually that's what Matthew's wanting us to pick from this, because in a sense, the genealogy is unresolved. In 1 verse 16, Matthew switches the formula as the genealogy happens, because he's the actual literal son of Mary. He ends up on Mary, but legally that won't work. And because Joseph is righteous, so he obeys and does all that the angel tells him to. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, what? Are you serious? Were we meant to believe in angels and virgin births and all that stuff? Really? It's nice for Christmas, but it's not real. Do we really believe this stuff? Come on, isn't it just a fairy story, genuinely? I think it's a great question. I think there are lots we can say, and I'd love to chat to you afterwards. Um, I'd love to raise the option for you as well, or maybe you've got friends here who would enjoy this. That There's a thing called Christianity Explored starting um, 
January the 8th, Monday the 8th, for about six weeks um, in the evening, 7.30. If you or if you've got friends and you think they would love to do this, um, let me encourage you to consider that. Um, What do we say about angels and miracles and virgin births and that kind of stuff? I recognize that it is a struggle to believe this where we come from. I think foundationally that comes to the fact that there's a clash of worldviews going on here. We live in the small corner of the world, in the small corner of history where we don't believe in miracles. And the problem is, in the Bible, God is not just an idea or a theory or a philosophy or a construct. Rather, he is actually real and he really interacts with people in time and space. But because in our small corner of the world, in our small corner of history, we don't believe in miracles or God as more than a construct or an idea, then we struggle when we see things like miracles. And we say things like, well, I I can't believe in miracles. Of course I can't. I can't believe in virgin births and angels. Those things are nuts because those things don't happen in my world, I think. And therefore, those things don't happen. They can't happen, we say. There's this clash of worldviews going on. There are these glasses that we wear, and we find it very difficult to accept that we might be wearing glasses. But the claim of the Bible is that God is not just an idea or a theory or a construct or something that works for some people, or something that some people use to make life a bit less scary or a bit more manageable. No, the reality is God is real. And he really interacts with people. And he's active and he's at work. And of course, at times, he can use extraordinary means if he wants to. Mary's situation is unusual. It's unusual, but it's not unique, strikingly. God is the God who can bring life from any womb, from any barren womb, whether it be Abraham and Sarah giving birth to Isaac, or sorry, and Isaac and Rebekah give birth to Jacob, or Elkanah and Hannah giving birth to Samuel, Zechariah and Elizabeth giving birth to John. And again and again and again, God is there with his highlighter pen as the pages of scripture turn saying, I can bring life. I answer prayers. I am in charge. I am good. Trust me, even from the depths of the darkness, I can bring life and light, says God. So it's an extraordinary birth. It really is. But there's a reason for that. It's an extraordinary birth because he comes on an extraordinary mission. And we said that this mission sits at the very heart of the scriptures, at the heart of the Bible. There are two names that Matthew speaks of um, in these verses which probably we just kind of skim over because we're used to. Let me read from verse 21 again, though. Bottom of uh, page 965. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And then end of verse 25, you see, and he gave him the name Jesus. Though he's called Jesus... His name is Jesus. It's the name given by God the Father to God the Son as he takes on flesh. And he was called Jesus not because it was a popular name of the time. But rather because it was his job description. Imagine every time his name is used, there's a reminder of why he's here. 
And why Jesus? Because he will save his people from their sins. Literally means God rescues, God saves. And we don't know at this point in the story how that's going to happen. We know the child will grow up into a man, though. And then the cradle is swapped for a cross. And he stretches further and further and further down in service of his people as he dies for them. Because God's sense of smell is perfect. And where we get desensitized, he does not. He can't just pretend sin is not there. He can't just play make-believe and imagine it's all going to go away. He can't just not notice it. Because he is pure and he is good and he is holy. And so he saves his people from their sins as he dies in the place of his people. Just as he established the sacrificial system. Just as blood was shed for the blood of his people. So in love he comes to be the perfect sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice. So he's called Jesus, and I guess we kind of know that. But more than that as well, he's going to look verse 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, what's going on here? Um, We're just going to kind of slow down and try and work out exactly what's happening because Matthew, if you look at the little footnote there, quotes from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. So the prophet that's being referred to in verse 22 and 23 was a guy called Isaiah, writing about 700 years before Jesus. And if you want to flick back to page 692 with me, um, that will be helpful. Isaiah chapter 7. And I want to say it's slightly complicated. So if you don't get it all... I'd love to chat afterwards. Isaiah's writing at a time when God's people in God's land were split into north and south, so after Solomon. Um, And in geopolitical terms, it's quite a complicated and difficult time because what you've got in the north, Samaria, is you've got the Assyrians coming to try and smash them. And so what what the Samaritans do is they then join with the Syrians against the Assyrians. Okay, so Samaria plus Syria versus the Assyrians. And the people in the north, that is the Samaritans and the Syrians, try and get the guys in the south to come and join them. The south is not cooperative at this point. And so the north then come down to the guys in the south and try and force them to join against the Assyrians coming from the north. Essentially, then it turns into a civil war amongst God's people, the north versus the south. And so what does the king in the south do at the time? Well, Ahaz is not a great king at this point. Um, And this is kind of where we pick it up. Isaiah comes to warn King Ahaz in the south that only the Lord can guarantee safety for you. Don't form alliances. Don't jump into bed with the Samaritans and the Syrians against the Assyrians. There'll be a quiz afterwards. He says, don't form alliances. Trust me. Trust me for your safety. Trust the God whom you are supposed to be serving. 
And I'll prove it to you. I will prove that you can trust me because I will show you a sign. And the sign is, the sign that God is with you is that a young baby will be born to a young woman or or possibly a virgin um, in the Hebrew. And actually, that's probably to Isaiah and his young wife at this point in Isaiah 7. But then 7, and I'm on page 692, shifts into chapter 8 and then into chapter 9. And so what happens is 7 verse 16 Uh, before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste, okay? So don't form alliances with the north because they're going to get smashed by the Assyrians. It it won't help. Chapter 8 then describes it happening. But then chapter 9, if you want to flick over the page, again, possibly familiar verses at this time of year for you. Here's the curious thing. In chapter 9... God says this, he says, do you know the ultimate act of me being with you, of me looking after you, will be when I myself come and be with you as a baby. And then Isaiah 9, for to us, verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on God's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So do you see, in Isaiah 7, it's a slightly obscure little historical reference encouraging one of God's kings in the south not to form an alliance with Samaria and Syria in the north against the Assyrians. And the sign that God is with you will be a baby born. And so the question is, why does Matthew quote it as he does? And as you can probably imagine, gallons of ink have been spent on it. Is Matthew just grabbing it and misapplying it? Is Matthew okay to do this? Matthew, is this kind of legitimate sort of Bible study method, if someone did this at home group, would you just be looking at them and scratching your head and thinking, not convinced? Let me try and help you. And we've said this before at Magdalen Road, but often in the Bible, prophecy works like a mountain range with different fulfillments going on. So there you are, you're climbing your way up the mountain and you finally see the top of the mountain. Out of the misty clouds comes the top of the mountain. And you finally, you're just about to reach the top. And there you go. And suddenly you realize it's not the top at all. You've got miles more to walk. Have another Mars bar. Keep going. It's just a kind of partial peak, a midway peak to the very top. Well, so here I think what's going on is Isaiah 7. There's an immediate fulfillment. There's a partial peak. And it meant something to Ahaz. There was a baby born, which meant he knew God was with him and he ought not form an alliance with the Samaritans and the Syrians in the north. A child that shows him God's faithfulness, God's provision, protection, despite oppression, despite opposition. But then it's as if Matthew says, and do you know what, guys? That was just halfway up. They were just halfway up the hill. There's another mountain in the distance. There's another one. 
the one whom it all points to, the true mountain, another child from the line of David, another child that shows God's faithfulness and his deliverance despite opposition, despite oppression. And this child, well, we get much more of a picture about him in Isaiah 9. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us. He will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Of of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it from this time on and forevermore. And it's as if Matthew says, we've reached the top. You know, we're there now. There's not going to be another peak after this one. We're here. This is the true Emmanuel. This is God with us. This is God living among his people again. This is the promise of intimacy. This is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We're here. And God lowers himself. He condescends. He takes on flesh. He comes and lives on earth. Which means if you were if you were in the right place at the right time, you could actually see him. You could actually touch him. You could actually speak to him. He was born. He had, he had knees and elbows. He ate food. He interacted. He got angry. He, he wept. He bled. And this is what Christmas is about. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's called the Incarnation. It is absolutely crazy this is God taking on flesh and coming to live among his people this is Jesus come to die for the sins of his people that we might know Emmanuel and again maybe you say well I don't see Jesus now I don't see him now. We're not in the right place at the right time. We can't actually see and touch him and speak to him in that way. We missed that. That was for a previous generation, centuries before. But the striking thing is how Matthew ends his gospel. You ever notice that? Back to Matthew again. And let me encourage you to turn to the final chapter of Matthew. 28. Let's go page 1001. This is the striking thing. I'm reading from Matthew 28 and verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely... Hang on, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Do you see, Jesus is not here in a bodily sense now, at least not in terms of a human body, his fleshly body, but he is here with us by his Spirit. Because he's Jesus, because he saves his people from their sins, and so he can be Emmanuel, God with us. And because he now has all authority, he goes back to the Father and with the Father sends his spirit to us 
that we might still claim Emmanuel. He is with us now. Emmanuel is not just for Christmas. But it's not quite the same as at the beginning, is it? It's still not quite the walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day type intimacy. At this point, and yet let me encourage you to look at the end of the story. The candles remind us we are in Advent. Advent is about waiting and remembering. Because one day Jesus will return. One day all things will be made new. Revelation 21, verse 2 to 4, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I saw a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things have passed away, or next chapter 22 verse 3 to 5 no longer will there be any curse the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him and they will see his face and so often we think about the new heavens and the new earth and we think it's going to be brilliant there's going to be no more death or tears or mourning or crying or pain and those things are so precious but the most precious thing is that we shall see him face to face And he will dwell among his people and be with them. And it will be Emmanuel forever. So this Christmas, I'd love to urge you, in the midst of the hustle and bustle, in the midst of Christmas preparations and activities and jumping onto Amazon Prime to get the stuff delivered as quick as possible and navigating the weather and all that's going on, to just pause and remember our Jesus who saves, our Emmanuel, God with us. The reminder of the extraordinary claim of the incarnation, God bodily coming to live on his earth. The reminder of God with us now by his Spirit. But the reminder of the Emmanuel to come, the hope to come, the new heavens and the new earth. This world is not all there is. We'll see that brokenness and pain and suffering will be a thing of the past, but we'll see that that distance will also be a thing of the past. We'll see him face to face. Intimacy. Walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day. God with us. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus was called Jesus because he came to deal with our sins. He came to rescue, to save his people. But thank you that he was called Emmanuel. As we remember you taking on flesh to come and live among us. Lord, this Advent, would we look ahead to the time when we shall see you face to face? To the time of intimacy? 
to the time of God with us forever, walking with you in the garden in the cool of the day. To the time when it's meant, when the world is meant to be as it's meant to be. In your son's name we pray. Amen.